paying you more money? Yeah, Starbucks is giving all of his baristas a raise starting in mid-December. Wait, so it's not just you. It's like no, literally it's shifts. Everyone. It's barista. Oh, I'm a barista trainer now, by the way. So yay. And <laughs> but no, it's shift leaders. It's baristas. It's um, barista trainers. Everybody gets a raise because it, it's a funny story actually. It's because during COVID, Starbucks was nice enough to keep paying us a full paycheck, or like for part-time workers, you know, 40 hours a week and whatever for the whole like two, three months that we were completely shut down. And then everybody's like, hey, you're sitting on a ton of cash. This should be permanent. So it was a very unappreciative sort of thing, but it Wait, worked out. You're telling me that the workers yeah, it was like a, a little bit and then they're like, hey, give us more. <laughs> I know. And I feel bad taking it. I'm like, that's such a mean move. We got literally got don't, paid. Don't for feel like, bad at all. If you are if you are in the position of being the worker, I, this weren't is the, we just talking about like how see, your feelings about is, Marxism? I, we were, but this is on, on a very broad scale. Marx tends to lead to terrible things. The one good insight that I think Marx has is that he does force you to realize that not everyone has your self interest at heart. the The manager is thinking about it from a managerial standpoint. The owner is thinking about it from the owner standpoint. But you're not either of those. You're a barista trainer who is making like less than 20 bucks an hour, I'm assuming. Oh, yeah. And so like you're looking at it from a totally different scale. So you should not expect the regional district manager or whatever, or much less the assistant to the regional manager to like make some assume that you are going that what's really in your best interest is what they're going to do. So okay. that's where I find Marx helpful, because like Marx is right. Management and labor see things from two different perspectives. That's about the only thing that Marx is right about. The rest of it is a train wreck. All right. I mean, and with that, speaking of helpful things, let's talk about nukes. Um, today we're doing an <laughs> yes. episode on the novice, sorry, no, the November, December um, public forum resolution resolved. The United States should adopt a de declaratory nuclear policy of no first use. There it is. We're finally on to public forum. We've done LD. I think we've done like three LD episodes and a, and a Coolidge episode. That's got to be the ratio. It's like three LD to one public forum. It's like public forum is definitely not our forte, but we, still, we still try to make it work. Oddly enough, though, we have a lot more students on the team doing PF this year than we do LD. So there's yeah. that. But I'll admit I'm still far more partial to LD, which I think we kick off most of our PF episodes talking about why LD is better. <laughs> which, I've, yeah, that's not fair. And also, like, I'm interested to see our listeners, like the sort of demographic, like what what portion of you guys are LD debaters, what portion of you are PF debaters? Feel free to, you know, email us or comment on the most recent Instagram post about our last episode with Mark Paul. That's the, true. Yeah, I'll the, just actually uh, just leave that there. Let's just go with our, uh, our, our new Keynesian economics content. Yeah, Keynesian economics uh, content. If you want to be uh, a, a super fan, uh, no one has actually left us any feedback on Apple Podcasts in over a year. Oh, so wow. if you are an LD person and want to show your, your LD patriotism, feel free to comment in the form of a comment on Apple Podcast with uh, how much you love LD. If you love PF, tell us why you love PF in our Apple Podcast. Run our ratings up. Oh, that yeah, we should great. see whoever, should, whoever comments first will get to win some honor as a good fan. There we, we don't go. Have An unspecified honor because we're broke. So yeah. uh, with that, uh, okay, let's, let's get to the resolution because this will post when we're already two or three weeks into the resolution cycle. Uh, so... Ethan, what do you what do you make of the resolution? Before we get to do definitions, I know you did uh, nukes as an LD resolution. Yeah. So, what what's your initial take on this as a resolution for public forum? Um, the the one thing I just hear in my brain when I read the resolution is someone's going to say it's not going to matter. Like it, a, a policy of no first use is a policy of no first use. It's like 
okay, well, if this person's not using first, then like how how are you even how do you police that? Because once someone does it, it's like, well, the world's over, or you know, a good chunk of the world is over. So does it really even matter? Like, and I don't know. My brain's just kind of already going to the negative side um, as just kind of the skeptic, I guess you could say. But to be fair on the affirmative, I actually was reading through an article with um, Ethan Carpenter, and we were discussing his affirmative case. And he found some really good impacts linking the affirmative to like what happens when you cooperate on a global scale and like what level of cooperation does a policy of no first use indicate to the world and what countries have already adopted, things of that nature. So there's definitely a lot of good sort of cooperation for like environmental incentives, economic incentives that come with a first or no first use policy that we sort of saw. So I think there's it's all about impacts on both sides and who can link their case to the most impacts. And it's for this resolution in particular, it's not going to be very hard to get to everyone's favorite, nuclear war. <laughs> and probably the close kissing cousin of nuclear war, environmental oh, yeah. stuff, yeah, and, you know, the climate cloud, change right? as an existential crisis. Right, that, yeah, that, the, that argument is all over here. Yeah, it's like the, the little step process. You've got the big cloud that chokes out all of the, all of the oxygen, and then plants die, and then humans die. Hey, and then, you know what's gone? What? Trump impacts. Right. Those are gone. <laughs> no, but now the Supreme Court impacts. That's who oh, that's true. Here. That's true. But I, I was thinking about today, you know, I, I just hate in our last couple tournaments, so many random rounds have gone like, the resolution, sharp turn, but Trump! And that's finally going to be over, I hope. Yeah. Anyway, back on point. Um, one thing that leaps out to me about this, uh, I, I think you're absolutely right about the, the, in, the initial move to the, to the con here. Because the first thing I heard, I actually pitched this to some of our middle schoolers as a pro argument, but it's really it's really con in nature. Mm-hmm. But basically, running Machiavelli on this, where Machiavelli is the first modern political scientist or political theorist, in the sense that he doesn't care about morals. So basically, he thinks that the ruler, the prince, or in our more contemporary case, the uh, Department of State or the foreign policy actors, should basically say whatever will benefit their country and don't worry about actually fulfilling your word. So I I do think there's something on here about like, okay, where Khan should be sort of ready to say, "Uh, yeah, sure, we can adopt it, but do we have to actually follow it? Does the resolution require us to actually follow it? Just a policy of lies. It's like Basically. a smoke screen, essentially. Yeah, That's like, interesting. Where, I mean, Khan can say, okay, we will take all of the affer- all of pros' impacts and we'll say sh- we get those through promising them, but we're also going to turn those and flip it to the Khan because we never intend to actually fulfill or to follow this if we're in a situation where we think it makes political sense to launch the nukes That first. is like the most interesting form of a perm I think I've ever heard because it's like this reminds me of, you know how snakes eat mice? They like swallow it whole, but they can barely do it. You know what I mean? Like some, like sometimes a snake can't even do it, but it's like the mouse will just barely go through the, that massive mouth that the snake has. That's how hard it sounds like you're trying with this perm right now. It's like, it's everything is the affirmative except we're lying. Like would that really, is that different enough to constitute a perm where you can have all the affirmative impacts? Well, certainly not in PF where I'm not really going to call it a perm and I'm not going to use the terminology. I'm going to keep it public forum. But I'm basically going to try to do that. I mean, you can think of this as a plan-inclusive counter-plan, but again, not going to call it a pick, not going to throw out That's the terminology. That's what that is. Oh, yeah. But here's the thing is that in order to, to pull that off, you need to manipulate the definition of adopt. Because there's – affirmative is going to have like – you're going to accuse affirmative of saying that adopt is in writing but not in principle. And then it's like such a superficial form of adopt that you can easily go back on it for the benefit of your own country. But I, I don't think that – you can escape well with that. 
I don't. Th- I, I don't I, think that the, imp- the the impacts would just flow over as easily as you I, make probably it out. not. I, I, but again, and that's not a researched position that I've got clearly worked out, and I'm trying to get anyone to adopt. That was my initial kind of like, okay, is there a difference between what we say diplomatically and uh, the uh, the German word that comes to my mind is the real politique, right? Yeah. Is there what's the distinction? Well, let's talk about definitions for a second. I do think you, you may be right about adopt. I didn't pull any special fancy definitions of adopt. I'm assuming that at least on a surface level, what we're saying is that this should be the United States official policy that is stated and I presume intended. I think mm-hmm. that probably is implied uh, initially and you would need to kind of do some fancy steps to get oh, out yeah, of that. It would require some, some choreography for sure. Uh, but I went digging for a – I wanted to know if there's anything special about a declaratory nuclear policy. Is it declaratory or declaratory? I would call, say it declaratory. but I think declaratory, but we'll keep it – You know – No, that's what we need people to comment on. Tomato, tomato. Whatever. Keep going. Uh, okay. Uh, I w- I w- uh, this is from armscontrol.org. Uh, they have a, a nice fact sheet about this that essentially argues that – or explains that a declar- declaratory nuclear policy is a public statement of when a country intends to use their nuclear arsenal. Okay. So whether – and the current status quo is that the United States has officially reserved the right to first use. We have said, uh, and I don't really know who we is, I don't know if this is the Pentagon or Department of Defense, I don't know who the military agency is here, but we have said if we're in a situation where it makes good political, strategic, military sense to launch the missile first, we will do that. Yes, and, and I'm already sort of thinking of framing, which we're gonna, I'm going to refrain from for a moment. You and mean you're going to refrain from the framing yes, and I'm almost rhyme? Yeah, almost. Okay. okay, tell us about no first use and we'll get into that. So literally no first use is the promise that you won't be the first one to launch. Not the status quo. Right, okay. so meaning that even if the only – the scenario that came to my mind was uh, probably one of two – Either uh, we, the United, the CIA reports actionable intelligence that Beijing or Moscow is launching a is about to launch a missile, and we preemptively launch on the enemy before they attack us. Or we have a situation where you have an ideological enemy like Tehran launching a nuclear missile that, as far as I know, we, they don't currently have, but launching that on Jerusalem, and we are launching first because of treaty alliances. Something like that would be where we would do that. And we're officially saying in no circumstances will we exercise the ability to launch the first nuclear missile. Okay, so quick like off-case note real quick. Is it possible for the affirmative to run a nihilism K? If now, you... I'm just going to point out that in PF, there are no Ks. There's also no affirmative. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I'm still thinking LD. I'm sure someone's done it. People oh, were... well, no, they're, they're, but that's oh, the thing. Oh, so this is like you're not supposed to, but it, it happens every time. So they... PF, is like every other event in the debate world, PF has the progressive creep. And it came from, yeah. My okay. understanding is that it's actually, there's a lot less of it in PF, like, the majority of NatSERC PF is still basic impact calculus, extend the, extend the link, extend the warrant, uh, make sure it's evidence-based argumentation. It's not nearly as heavy, uh, like the sort of philosoph- philosophical framing. There is still framing, yeah. but the, the core of public forum is still there. Okay, so we'll, we'll leave nihilism. We'll leave nihilism there, and also well, I, explain your thought before we move oh, on. Well, what, what are you seeing there as, like, a, as an option? Okay, so the resolution in the affirmative reads: the United States should adopt a declaratory nuclear policy of no first use. 
So one could possibly argue that if you do have a policy of first use, or you retain, you retain the policy of first use, then you can, yeah, you can launch the missile first, but then with the, the technological capabilities of our enemies, they will launch a counter-strike. So in that case, you're the subject of a counter-attack. In the other scenario, you're the, you're the subject of an attack that another country that doesn't have a first-use policy would sort of incite upon you. Either way, it, it ends in utter destruction. It's like a dilemma almost. So it doesn't matter what policy we have or don't have. It's going to end badly. Unless we're the, one of the only major countries with nuclear weapons that has no policy of no first use. But again, all the other countries could just lie, which I think is going to be a huge point in this debate. It's like, do you really expect someone to keep a public statement of a country's plan of when to use their nuclear arsenals? Like, well, especially you- when the largest nuclear powers in the world are also countries that the United States has an adversarial relationship with. Yeah. So we, I don't know why we would expect China to be honest or North Korea to be honest or Russia to be honest much less the smaller countries with lower levels of nuclear power, uh, which really I'm thinking primarily of China and Russia as the two that are close to equaling the U.S. nuclear stockpile. Yeah, so th- I guess like there's a whole deal sort of with honesty going on and, and everyone's ability to abide by it, which I think that the, firm, or the pro is going to need to make a very compelling case for idealism and like have a whole plethora of impacts to make that look really favorable. But... The neg has a lot of ground. Like, if you if you're throwing away a first use policy and you're you're like essentially relinquishing your, I mean, if it has weight to it, is the trick there. Like, if, if your no if your first use policy actually has weight to it and you will abide by it, you're throwing away a massive advantage that your country could, would otherwise have, especially when all the other countries are adversarial compared or in relation to your own. Well, I, I think you're right about that, and. Uh... Unless you object, I was going to kind of shell out my thoughts on framing and arguments and then shift it back over your way for any follow-ups you have or other things you'd have. That works. Okay. Uh, On pro, I I think you're absolutely right, Ethan, about the necessity of the idealism. Um, Where here, I would argue that basically for for PF, you you have no time to lay out a nice framing. You have four minutes to get the AF out, and that's that's really all you can do. Uh, so I would ha- I would use this in terms of PF framing. I would have this in your mind as you put your case together, and at most one or two sentences that actually frame the round, because you need to spend most of your round on impacts and on links. So uh, that being said, the framework that I would want to have in mind here is uh, what I'm calling diplomatic idealism, where essentially you are maintaining through all of your argumentation. That the way to fix the problem, the, the biggest problem in the world is warfare and the destructive nature of international warfare. And so the way that we advance the global, we increase global progress is through peace and stability. The way to ensure peace and stability is through clever and strong diplomacy. So the justification for a no first use policy really lies in the fact that it will lead to all kinds of diplomatic benefits. Now those diplomatic benefits are always idealistic, meaning that you're sort of going to be asserting this will calm down this troubled region, this will cause all kinds of trade deals to happen. It's going to be really hard to come up with, I think it's going to be hard to come up with sound, solid evidence on that point. But uh, three basic ideas that I would suggest in terms of the argumentation. Uh, First, uh, that uh, 
a no first use policy signals an awareness of the possibility of nuclear mistakes and the devastation those would cause. Uh, it is there are a few stories from the Cold War where the world nearly ended because Russia or the United States thought the other was launching a nuclear missile. Uh, there's one about like literally as a, a technician in the middle of nowhere, uh, Russia, who was supposed to, according to the policy, was supposed to launch the missile, and he just didn't. He stubbornly refused to follow protocol. And literally, we're still sitting here today because this technician refused to launch the missile. Wait, we need to pause. That's very discomforting. <laughs> like, on a, on a completely other type of level. That, like, our, our existence is predicated on whether or not some guy refuses to press a button. Like, granted, the first strike of nuclear weapons is not going to end the world. But if, I mean, I'm sure some of you have at least heard of the nuclear arsenal's LD debate. Um, and and I'm, I'm, like, conversed with LD debaters since y'all are PF debaters that are um, probably listening to this episode. You've heard the impacts a million times. Once one country launches the nukes, it's very difficult to prove that the other ones won't. Like, the fact that, I mean, it's like the world could end, honestly. Oh, it could. You seem too comfortable with that. Well, it's just part of, I mean, it's just part of knowing that this is the world we live in. The world could have ended a thousand ways in recent years. I'm holding a book I bought last year and intended to uh, mine for cards, uh, but haven't yet. It's by a scholar named R.J. Rummel. It's called Death by Government. It literally is an academic study of all the different ways that governments have caused the deaths of hundreds to hundreds of thousands of their citizens. You get this from Mr. Bonin? No, I, I like... bought it from Amazon. Oh, okay. I thought he was talking about this one. Now, we talked about this last year. We just never actually did anything with it. Uh, but that's one place that might have the story I'm thinking of. Anyway, the point I'm trying to get at is that it's a, probably a solid argument on here to recognize just how easily a nuclear war could start and going out of your way as a country to indicate that we will not be the ones to start that war. That signals a lot diplomatically to other countries about the seriousness of the United States in making peaceful efforts. Um, couple impacts you already mentioned, obviously, uh, the nuclear exchange, World War III, that's kind of obvious. The ecological disaster and the way that could advance a climate change narrative, that becomes pretty obvious as well. Uh, just in case anybody wants a fun literature reference to be able to toss in, which never happens in PF, but I would <laughs> love to judge around where someone read a, a literature card. Um, there's a 1950s novel by a guy named, or no, it's, uh, it was written in the 60s. The author's name is Pat Frank. The novel is called Alas Babylon, where uh, is uh, the guy uh, Pat Frank, the author, was a former army guy who uh, wanted to explain to his neighbor just how easily a nuclear war could start and how much it would change civilization. So he started literally gaming it out, and then it turned into a novel about a small town in southern Florida that suddenly all technology has been disrupted and everything electronic is gone and all communications and transportation is gone. And what do they do? How do they survive? Uh, it's, it's a great way to kind of get your head in that space to make those arguments. Uh, second thing I would point out is uh, I would look to the way a nuclear arms race can become a definitive mentality between countries and how, much, how many resources are then spent in developing increased nuclear stockpiles. Wow, yeah, there's a massive economic impact there. Or, or maybe is it all lost now since the arms race has sort of settled down and we're not like 
you know, I, mean, I guess maintenance, and maybe maybe there's some cards for how much money it takes to maintain nuclear arsenals. Well, we, have we, can, pl- we have some of those on, on your case last sure. year. Sure, and yeah, if you can prove that once you sign a nuclear or a no-first-use policy that you can trim the amount of weapons in your arsenal, that could save on maintenance costs. That's just a thought. Yep. Uh, so basically, all of this is looking at affirming the United States as really being about diplomacy first rather than some other goal. Um, I do think AF should be ready... Uh, to AF should be ready to read an abuse card or two, uh, because in part because you've got a pretty solid argument that there's not enough ground on affirmative. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you're, you should be ready to basically don't rest your entire case on claiming that the resolution is so badly worded. There's no real world impacts in the affirmative world, but do be ready to say. Judge, you really should prefer my case and don't expect me to meet the same level of evidence that my opponent has because my case is in the resolution puts me in an an idealistic theoretical world. So yeah, you should, and not even just idealistic, just theoretical. As yeah. in, you're making the case for the world that does not yet exist. So it's, it's clearly it's going to be right. Wonderful. And there, there is a uh, even though it's PF, uh, there's a. Uh, this is a pretty strong should, I think. The should here is leaning t- more towards ought than it usually does. And your affirmative or pro has to kind of argue a different level of argumentation in the same time constraints, all of which helps a, uh, a theory type argument. Um, one other thing that this at least occurred to me, I know, Ethan, I know you love arguing by analogies. Um, I think there could also, years ago now, this was like, you and Dallas were partners on this, so this is going yeah. back like four or five years ago. Uh, PF had a uh, it was a guns rights or right. gun, yeah. yeah yeah guns law gun law um, uh, resolution, and I think this is analogous, but because the nuclear weapon is basically the the gun of the country. So some of the same arguments that you might run on why we should restrict the individual's ability to access guns or maybe require people who purchase guns to swear on their honor to not be the first person to draw their gun in a conflict or something, those might be analogous here. Uh, And in which case you might have access to thinking about the United Kingdom as a country that has successfully... They don't have an armed police force. They don't have an armed populace. They don't have a right to uh, own guns in the UK the way the uh, Second Amendment gives to citizens of the United States. So that might be kind of a way to also set up maybe a different level of argumentation to argue that there are benefits here and we need to kind of think about them sort of analogously to restricting gun rights. What do you think of all that? Lots of – okay, quick quick side thought. I know someone in England that told me even though they don't have guns, they throw acid on each other. Like, people literally, I think it's they, it's called acid attacks. It's like a horrific, like, burn. It's it's, literally, it's it's terrifying, yeah. But I just had to say, that was just, I had to get that out. Okay. Diplomacy first is the strongest of these three. I think that should definitely be at the top of the priorities list. Um, when, when you make a diplomacy first sort of mentality and you already have other countries that have adopted the same policy, that... It shows that the cooperation is contingent on our conversation now. The cooperation is contingent on the passage of this resolution almost. So it's like because other countries have already implemented this, it's not like the the LD resolution, for example, where it's like, 
all nations should eliminate their nuclear arsenals, right? Because be the that has first a, one to like yes, throw exactly. down your walls. It's and like yeah, be the first one to throw missiles. down the walls. No, here other countries have already sort of like thrown down their walls. I guess is the way you said it. So the the outcomes contingent on this decision. Like there, this makes the impacts more real and closer in proximity for you to connect to when when the United States, the most powerful nation in the world as it currently stands, makes the decision that gives you access to those impacts. Um, and I think that there's plenty of really good economic arguments to be made there, more so with interrelations with other countries than the one I was sort of thinking of earlier, maintenance on nuclear arsenals, even though it could be seen as a minor side benefit, and there might actually be numbers from other countries to prove that. Um, and as far as maintaining good trade relations, um, there could be a, a small harm there when it comes to protecting allies, but again... I don't really see how to protect how you could protect allies in a nuclear sort of scenario without destroying the entire world. I like the gun analogy that you made, um, except the only difference here is that drawing the gun makes sense, but it's like who's going to be the first to like the the guns are essentially already drawn, like they're armed and they're ready to go. Mm, that's a good point. And in the nuclear scenario, the bullets fly slow enough for the other person to be able to fire back without having died first. So that's it, there's potential for a counter. There is the only sort of. But in a very broad sense, the analogy works, and then every analogy breaks down eventually. It breaks that one down, just down really fast. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. Oh, wow, that was a very loud sound bar, that laugh on a recording. Okay, so um, I think the diplomacy is the strongest argument you have. You're going to find tons of impacts for that. There's tons of literature that's applicable to PF under the diplomacy sort of argument. Um, and I think that sort of trying to use this as reversing the arms race mentality and getting us back to where we were before this sort of this race to the top, or in some, in some cases you could even argue race to the bottom, um, has put us, then I think diplomacy and, and reducing or reversing the arms race mentality are really good arguments that are going to give you access to a lot of economic impacts and the potential for even more economic impacts as it relates to other countries, um, especially since we're the ones that have not yet been peaceful, and there are plenty of other countries that have adopted this policy as it stands. Um, yeah, so that's my thoughts on AF. You want to, or pro, you want to move on to con? Sure. Cool. Uh, in terms of con, uh, as far as framing goes, I would encourage folks to think, uh, take advantage of the fact that the resolution favors you and gives you access to a politically, politically realist perspective. Meaning that where AF is sort of leaning towards hoping, ah, we're going to do this soft, kind, nice thing and people are going to reciprocate. In the con world, you can easily be like, look, no, countries are going to take advantage of us if we do this. We lose something key. So you want to focus on con really in terms of the political reality that nations each seek their own self-interest and they seek to harm weak nations if they can and if that helps them. So you want to think really more critically and almost negatively about countries from the con point of view. Now, argumentatively, I would start with the fact that doing this diplomatically and militarily weakens the United States position. We have the largest nuclear stockpile in the world currently. Promising to not uh, ex not use that weakens us. It's like big stick diplomacy. I was just thinking yeah. of that, the, the Teddy Roosevelt line of uh, speak softly but carry a big stick. Uh, for Really, for after, throughout the 20th century, that has been the approach of American diplomacy. Now, depending on who's been president, we've been more or less willing to exercise that. But really, the, the heart of American diplomacy is the fact that we can mobilize fast, we have a strong technology, we have a massive military-industrial complex that can, uh, uh, that can mobilize militarily as needed, 
This really works against that. This says we have this massive weapon that we're going to promise not to use. Instead of using fear to motivate other countries to not attack us or our interests. Um, argument two, I think Khan uh, should definitely point out that we have national enemies who would take advantage of this policy. Russia, China, and North Korea are the three, the big three that came to my mind. Uh, that they have all three of those. We are we are tenuous frenemies maybe with Russia. It's like, we're not Cold War adversaries anymore, but I, I don't really want to raise the specter of Russian interference in an election. Yeah. We have enough issues with Russia and Ukraine that there's other issues. There's, there's reasons we have tense issue relations with Russia. China, we just we lost a trade war against China two years ago. Uh, China's uh, increasing uh, communist ideology is moving it in directions that are opposed to American convictions on freedom of religion, on free speech, on trade. All of those things prime us to be enemies. North Korea is run by a traditionally insane family. It's weird. So we have enemies who are moving in that direction and, or in a, in a nuclear, nuclear war direction who would want to see us make a weaker move so that that positions them in a position of strength. Uh, thirdly, uh, we have uh, – I'm a big fan of the United States' position of being allies with Israel. Having a uh, democratic ally in the Middle East is key. Uh, one of the – as a – Really unrelated side note, but I'm going to toss it in here. Uh, one of the notes that I thought was missing from President Trump's last six weeks uh, in the public eye uh, was really the fact that he had some massive diplomatic wins for the nation of Israel. Uh, the, it has been one of the major policy goals of the United States for the last 70 years to advance peace in the Middle East, primarily through helping the nation of Israel to form relations with other countries. No one's been able to get it done. Uh, in my lifetime, I watched George, George W. Bush tried, Bill Clinton tried, Obama didn't really try on that. That was not a, that was not a major focus for him. Uh, Donald Trump did, and he moved the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, which was largely symbolic. But in the last three months, uh, there have been three major Muslim Arabic nations that have formally recognized the existence of Israel and begun establishing diplomatic ties with Israel. So uh, all of that to say, my third argument on Khan would focus on the fact that the U.S. nuclear arsenal and our stated willingness to use it actively deters aggression against Israel. And so we have one of the strongest alliances that we can form with the nation of Israel. We are the military backing for the nation of Israel beyond their own borders. Uh, particularly the place, country that comes to my mind is Iran. Uh, Tehran would blow up Jerusalem if they could. But if they do, by treaty, we are obligated to go to war on Israel's behalf. So the no first use policy would really weaken our ability to preemptively strike in a uh, in a middle east context what do you think i think after running through both courses of argumentation pro and con the no first use policy signing it just seems meaningless because there there's it's it is signaling just like the definition said it's it's just simply signaling the weapons aren't going anywhere i mean maybe you disarm them and then you could just arm them back when someone fires first like the weight behind the signal does not disappear so, I mean, which is a good point to sort of recognize on Khan here, is that does it diplomatically weaken, the, or does it militarily weaken the United States if we make a gesture of cooperation, but 
it's there's no further incentive to attack the United States because the potential for a counterstrike is still there. It's still just as prevalent. It's, it's still a very real fact that if somebody attacks the United States, we're going to fire our nukes back, and that's going to be the end of it. So saying that there's a, jet, there's a policy of no first use is like, well, first of all, will it even be followed, which is like, a, it's, that's just like a sickening route of argumentation to go through because like, who, where are the cards for that, honestly? It's like, is there a historical example of where someone didn't follow it? No. Like, you'd have we, to, we would you'd be have that example. Some, you'd have to have some other issue that you had a, or you'd have to have some kind of parallel example. Yeah, but where, like of similar weight, which would be difficult, but Yeah, I don't know doable. what you would go to for similar weight. But the, the nukes aren't going anywhere. That's the bottom line. So you can make a gesture of peace and diplomacy, and hopefully there's enough impacts to link to that, but I don't see any military weakening. Because there's, who cares if you could fire first? Like, there's always a potential for a counterstrike. There's, there, what further incentive does Russia have to, fo- to fire nukes on the United States if they just get to press the button first? We, will, we can counterstrike just as quickly. Unless someone finds that really cool card about, like, missile counterstrikes and how they could, like, take out ours before, you know. There is a lot stuff. of disagreement in cards about oh, whether, we got or into that at Durham, strike, man. At, whether or not, like, Counter-strikes would act, could actually work. And there was, like, all these things about nuclear silos and, like, oh, man, it was a great... It, that was, like, the most in-depth tournament. Nukes at, du- at Durham Academy, man. Like, for LD, obviously. That was great. That was a great sort of argument. But, yeah, um, the, the nukes won't go anywhere. It's a gesture of peace. Try to impact out how good gestures of peace operate in reality. And then on the negative side, I think di- diplomatically... Or diplomatic weakening is a real impact... Um, I don't know about military, but I definitely go down the road of argumentation for um, weakening from a diplomatic standpoint. Um, and I'm not convinced that there are enemies that could take advantage in a very direct sense of being the ones who would use first. Um, because, again, there's, there's no further incentive for them to do that. But I think there are disadvantages that can be linked to that are not so direct. Indirect inv- disadvantages of them harming us in other ways. So I think there's still plenty of impacts on both sides is what I'm saying. Well, uh, really, as we begin to kind of wrap up here, because I don't know that I have much more to say about this resolution, um, I will just say that some of uh, uh, one of our varsity PF guys, uh, Elijah, uh, he he saw this resolution and thought it was so dumb that he jumped ship to go do LD. Yeah. For for this uh, for the November December cycle. So uh, PF folks who are listening to this, uh, I know we make appeals to hear from people all the time. Uh, we're going to briefly address one of those in just a moment. Uh, but uh, uh, we would love to hear from you either over email, through a comment, uh, through any of our social media channels. We'd love to hear from you about your experience with debating this resolution. Uh, we're not going – we don't have anybody debating this one until the first weekend in December. Uh, so it's still going to be a little while before we figure out if there if this is a good resolution that's better than we think it is based on our commentary today, uh, or if this really is kind of a dud of a resolution. So please do let us know what you think about it. Um, at, before we wrap up, I do want to briefly address this. I don't know if he's going to listen to this episode or not since he's an LD guy, but we did get a really interesting email uh, asking uh, about the uh, Lincoln-Douglas federal jobs guarantee and uh, asking if we had any suggestions on arguments from an ableism perspective, uh, AF or NEG. Ethan, any thoughts there? Or do you want me to start off on that You one? can start for okay. sure. Uh, so – this is by no means a, anything that I know a lot about. Uh, ableism is a it's, it's an ideological perspective that is assuming that that assumes or asserts that active discrimination against people with specific disabilities. 
So uh, even the assertion of disabilities is itself sometimes co uh, constituting proof of ableism because judging one person to be less than fit is already kind of asserting that there is an ideal. And an ableist perspective, as I understand it at least, would really reject the, uh, the, an ideal of physical strength. Uh, or, or fitness in some way, and instead suggests this is where you get some people use the language of other abled or differently enabled to right. speak about people who otherwise might be called disabled. Mm -hmm. I say all that not to be ableist against anyone, but hopefully to clarify terminology. Now, on the federal jobs guarantee, um, I can see a pro argument where, or an AF argument where you extend the promises that are already in legislation about the. Uh, um, uh, the the civil dis or the disabilities act that mean that means every building has to be accessible has to be wheelchair accessible. This is why you have uh, you have so many elevators in American buildings because buildings by code must be accessible to those in wheelchairs and so on. But I can also see and you could extend that same argument to say that a federal jobs guarantee has to include would have to include uh, some kind of. A bit, something about uh, they will also provide jobs for those who are differently enabled than the mainstream person. This is a just to be clear. This is a con response to the affirmative federal jobs no, guarantee. I'm saying this is an argument that affirmative should in, could include and say we are from an ableist argument to say the federal jobs guarantee is going to help all the people who are differently enabled have jobs by uh, promising that they will have some job that they are physically capable of doing. Whatever that job happens to be. I be. mean, this sounds. They almost thought this was a negative response to F, saying like it is ableist of the affirmative to provide federal jobs, but then there's clearly some people that wouldn't fall into the program. Or well, I mean, that, that's assuming that they don't fall into the program because I think that's the yeah. negative. I think negative has two responses there: either to make that response to some to an affirmative plan that does not include room for people who have disabilities. But then um, also to argue, uh, NEG should go all in on how much that would increase the cost. Because you diminish the utility of the jobs that are being provided uh, if you are also now having to accommodate all kinds of different physical capabilities. Affirmative? So clearly the affirmative world is better able to provide for people who are not so well abled than, uh, than negative because negative is is like a beast in a selective sort of sense because you're dealing with the private sector so like if you have someone that's able to do a job and someone that's not able to do a job like the able person's getting chosen right and then there's no opportunity left for the disabled person and again not to be terminologically um, intolerant here but like I'm it's, clarity. it's yeah clarity for clarity's sake um, I mean nothing discriminatory by disabled but if uh, if negative so to answer the question I think there's a lot of potential in the in sort of an impact sort of sense to say that a group that is not considered to a significant degree when it comes to employment would seek would see benefits from a federal jobs guarantee. Perhaps you could find examples from countries that have already implemented this would be good. But from a more I, from a more like conceptual standpoint, um, if the government is required is making itself required or like passing this program to provide a federal job to everybody. Then there are specific jobs that can be tweaked, or especially if they're useful to society. Hopefully, the affirmative can. That's also part of your case that these jobs would be somewhat like useful to society or helpful to society. Then I would say that people of different mental capabilities would operate well into different sectors, and that is the government's responsibility to place them there. But 
from a, since my sort of thoughts are more from a defensive perspective, it's like how would I defend this argument from the negative side? Let the affirmative collapse to util. Um, or, it, or this is the only, this is not the sole reason, but this is another good reason why utilitarianism oddly works in the affirmative world in this resolution. You always see negative working, or util working with negative. You always pair util with negative, but not in this case. Because there, this, this case is so, yes, it's tied to idealism, but there are hard examples, and there's also enough literature to justify why this might actually work. Um, again, if you haven't listened to our interview with Mark Paul, he actually did give a very compelling case for why the federal jobs guarantee would work in practice, um, how much wasted work there is, potential for work in different areas. And um, it, again, it was a very compelling case. So I think this is a great way to go for affirmative. Um, if the negative says, yeah, well, what about it? these people wouldn't fall into these categories? I mean, if, if you have able-bodied people or a mentally able people caring for the disabled people, then in an indirect sense, you're still providing for the disabled people because the more able people will have sort of funds to help them, I guess, especially in the absence of government programs if that's a major issue in the status quo, which I'm not informed on. But um, I guess I would just, like adding more money to those who are able to care for others might indirectly sort of help. And I think that if, if it's mandated by the government to, to include those sorts of people, it's gonna happen a lot better or a lot more efficiently than it would in the status quo. Now, as hopefully is clear from the way we're discussing this, we are trying to answer the question asked, but neither of us is terribly comfortable in this particular literature in the sense that we've not read anything in this. Um, I would also add that uh, if you are reaching for ableist arguments, uh, you are reaching into the realm of identity politics, and you need to be aware that usually identity politics are closely connected. So if you're going to make an ableist argument, uh, you may find that you have accidentally triggered a feminist response or a language K because you used the wrong vocabulary in making your ableist argument. Uh, you, you can the, These are very tricky waters to kind of navigate. So it would just be something uh, I would encourage any uh, students who are listening to. This is something you want to like definitely consult your coach on. How do you construct this argument? And then you want to drill how to deliver this argument very well. This yeah. is not something that you want to like hear a senior make in one round and be like, ooh, insert that into my case in round two. This is not that kind of argument. Uh, this would be a very tricky round that has a lot of potential, or a tricky argument that has a lot of potential pitfalls. Yeah, and I think it would work well as an impact on a sort of a more traditional type of affirmative, but if you're going to run it as an impact, don't let it get forgotten. Because impacts like special, quirky sort of impacts like this always get lost in the round and lost in crystallization. Make sure if you're going to use it as an impact as a minor point to support your case as a potential advantage of the federal jobs guarantee to, to extend it all the way through the round and just don't let the negative say, you know, your plan won't include them or it's not going to help in this way. Like back it up with maybe like one or two different sources and just like use it as this sort of gadfly that's annoying the negative the entire time because you know they didn't prepare for it. Like, that, because it's creative. Like, I'll get, clearly we have all, close to no idea what we're talking about with this argument. But first of all, I'm very honored to have been asked this question because this person clearly thinks that we have some idea of what we're doing. And that's, that makes me very happy. And so that's, that's to the best of my ability how I can address that question or the, the ableist sort of question. So I think it would work great as a small um, sort of impact. And make sure, don't let it get lost. Don't let the negative let, lose that for you, because that could be a very valuable impact. Well, uh, we are very excited to uh, get to field a question from uh, Howland uh, Lincoln Douglas, and hopefully our answers were at least uh, provocative in helping you come up with some new ideas for your case. 
and we do hope if you've made it all the way through that uh, PFers, this has been beneficial to you, and LD folks, that it's been helpful to your case. Ethan, how can people get in touch with us if they want to leave us any feedback or uh, especially beyond uh, leaving us those uh, LD and PF comments on uh, Apple Podcasts? Yeah, so if you want to get in touch with us, you should do so at whatstheres at gmail.com. Follow Howland LD's example. Email us, W-H-A-T-S-T-H-E-R-E-S at gmail.com. We love hearing from you guys. Literally every time we get an email, like either either I see it first or Josh sees it first, and the, the first thing that we do is text the other person that we got some email feedback. It is very exciting to hear from you guys. Um, we love responding to the emails. We love plugging in sort of like a quick conversation about whatever the question was or comment was into our next episode. Um, it really means a lot to us to hear back from you guys. We'd love to hear back from you. Um, you can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit at what's the res underscore. Get in t- contact with us on social media. And of course, as always, we post all of our episodes for free at www.whatstherez.com. And with that, work hard, speak well, and seek the truth. Thank you.